morning, church. Morning. Uh, go ahead and find your Bible, first of all. And uh, before we get there into the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where we will land this morning, I wanted to draw your attention to something uh, that is over in the Welcome Center and also right up here in this front table. There are these little business cards uh, as Easter invitations um, for you as well, but also for your friends, your family, um, those heathens that you know, or yourself. Um, but we, we are having two services, um, Easter Sunday. And so on the front of the card, it has just the, the time and the location. And then on the back of the card, there's a place for you to put your name. So it says, you've been invited by that blank. Guess what? That's where your name goes. Okay? So you put your name, and then it has two other lines where you put some sort of contact information, whether it be an email address or a phone number. Uh, and you make that a personal invitation to somebody this coming Easter. So we have time at 9 o'clock and also at 11 o'clock. And uh, you can find these cards right up here in the front or over in the Welcome Center. So we want you to do that and uh, find those people in your life that um, need to hear the gospel. And maybe it's somebody that's been out of church for a while. What a great way to personally invite somebody uh, and, and see them here uh, that Sunday morning. Uh, you don't have to just invite for Easter. You can invite any time. Did you know that? We take, we take guests any time. So if you're a guest this morning, we are glad you're here. Uh, I personally am glad that you're here. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a black hardback under the chair in front of you or around you closely. And it would be on page 2 of that Bible that we will be uh, there in Genesis 3. Now, what we have been seeing in our study of Genesis, which again we started a complete study of Genesis, just the idea of the gospel in Genesis that we've been looking at. So we spent just a, one week, just a few verses in chapter 1, and the last couple weeks we've been looking in chapter 3. And what we've been finding is that there's a picture of the gospel being painted for us in the very beginning of your Bible. And what we are discovering is that God has a plan that has been determined and has been immovable since this time. And God is bringing that about and has brought that about through his son. And so this morning, why are we looking at Genesis? Why are we studying Genesis in the way that we are? It's because here in Genesis, we find so many answers to questions in which people have. And um, right here in the very beginning of the book, it answers so many questions in which people struggle with on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. The big questions people always ask, such as, why is the world the way it is? Why, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there death? Why are these things here? The age-old question that people ask all the time is, well, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that? Have you asked that question? Well, let me put it to you this way. Uh, well, that doesn't really happen. Bad things don't happen to good people because, you know, good people don't exist. Good people don't exist. And the idea of God's standard of what good is, they don't exist because of the fall of man. This is what we've been learning and looking at, even last week, as we talked about de the depravity of man and, and who we really are at our core. And what we always seem to do, we blame shift and we sidestep and we evade and we never take ownership of our sin. We never truly repent because there's something new in us. A new love that we have, and it's a love for sin. Now, as we look at this morning, we will see why bad things happen. But why do bad things happen to bad people? And that's really the better question that we should ask. We are not holy people. We have lost that. We are a wicked people. The Bible answers these questions that, that I've mentioned and it shows us that there's such a brokenness and a wickedness in our world today. It's that people have been deceived in believing that these wicked things in which they are choosing to do, these attitudes and their actions, they believe that these things are going to fix the dilemma, the problem, the torment in which they are in. And all of it is just deception. Genesis explains this to us. And we see this right here in one single chapter, the answer to some of these questions. Today, we're going to be examining verses 14 through 19 here in Genesis 3. And here we'll find that the, the curse 
that is put upon this world, well, there's actually several curses that are brought upon us and upon uh, the creation. But there's also hope in this uh, message this morning, a hope of restoration. So it's not just curses from God. And so many people have a view of God and that he's just, he's like this Zeus-like character. You know, the, the bearded guy up in, up in the sky with the lightning bolt. And he's looking and seeing what evil thing that you do to strike you down. And maybe you've even said this or heard somebody say it. Well, I'd get struck by lightning if I went to church. The place would burn down if I went to church. Oh, friends, you do not know God. You do not know who he is. And this is what Genesis 3 will reveal to us. In verses 14 through 19, more than likely in your Bible, you have it designated in some form or fashion that it's a different format in your Bible. Who has that? Anybody have a different kind of format to the rest of the text? Five, seven, eight people with a correct Bible. Okay. (laughs) I'm joking. But I am watching. So... In your Bible, you probably have a different format of the text and how it's laid out. That's because in the Hebrew, this is a poetic form. So the ESV Bible, which I'm using, and I think also the Pew Bibles, uh, the black hardbacks that you have, they designate that as in a different format to show that this is a poetic form that's being used in the Hebrew text. So what is this poetic form sharing with us? It's probably something sweet and romantic, right? Because that's what you think of in poetry. No? No, 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 no. It is a sentencing that's being given to humanity. A sentencing from a court that is being given. God is giving a sentence to three characters in which we have seen in this story because there has been cosmic treason. That's the way I like to put it. There's been a treasonous act against God that's been done. The highest of high of authorities has been offended. There has been a group that in their intent and in their purpose, it was to overthrow this authority. Now, as you probably know, the act of treason in, I think, probably all countries is probably about the same. And the penalty for that treason is, what's your guess? Death. Or public office. depends on where you are take that however you want God was not just hurt get this he was not just hurt by what Adam and Eve and Satan did in the garden he was not just offended well you didn't really take my advice this was not the case if that's your view of the garden you miss the view of sin Every act of sin is cosmic treason against God. It is the highest of offenses that has happened. Why would there not be a punishment that would be just for that? Here we have God passing judgment upon these that have been found guilty. They have committed treason against him. And this judgment, it starts with the serpent. And then it's to Eve. And then it's to Adam, finally. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning and then walk through what this has to tell us about the gospel. What does all of this have to do with the gospel? Look at verse 14 in Genesis chapter 3. It says, The Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The first judgment that is being passed down is directed to the serpent. Now notice something interesting here. Before this, in the early verses we talked about last week, God had asked questions, didn't he, with Adam and Eve. He had engaged them on a personal level 
But he doesn't do that here when he gets to judgment with the serpent. There's no personal engagement that's taking place between these two parties. It is instantly judgment. In verse 14, we will see that there's a physical serpent in which God is going to give judgment to. And then in verse 15, there seems to be a supernatural serpent. So there's two serpents being given judgment here. So let's take a little closer look at verse 14 to see if that is true. Verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, So uh, who, who is this serpent? Well, this serpent, as we saw earlier, the serpent that's referred to is Satan. But here, what is the indication that this is not the serpent that we have always been familiar with? Well, notice this also in the Old Testament of the Bible, that every reference to the serpent or to a serpent is always in a negative sense. It is always in a negative light in which the serpent is mentioned. And this is no accident as to why a serpent or a snake is seen in a negative sense in the Bible. And it all comes back to here in Genesis 3. But notice in this judgment that's being given, and who gives this judgment to the serpent? It says the Lord God, right? The Lord God is the one that gives the judgment to the serpent. And he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all, listen, livestock and of all beasts. So from this, we know that God is probably not addressing Satan as the supernatural serpent, which we know, but the actual physical serpent, the tool which Satan used to bring about this deception. Because he's being grouped in together with these physical creatures, And so God is given a curse, if you will, to this serpent, a judgment to this serpent, as we know him to be the snake today. Seeing that God is grouping these together kind of makes me, anyways, ask some questions about what is God doing here? What are the intentions of God in cursing this serpent? Why is he directing judgment upon a physical creature that really has no capability of sinning? God does not curse all the cattle or all of the beasts. He only curses the serpent. Now, all of the creatures, uh, they now feel the effects of sin, of the fall, of the curse. But not all of them were cursed directly. But only the serpent, only the snake was. What is God doing here? Why is God cursing the snake? Has the snake really done anything wrong? Or was he just used as as a vessel or as a tool in which... Uh, Satan then deceived Adam and Eve. It's just an animal. What kind of capacity does this animal have to sin? It doesn't have a conscience. It doesn't have moral thought processes. It's a snake. What is God doing? Well, I think God is doing something quite obvious, which God does throughout the Bible, and he is using the serpent as a symbol. He is using this physical creature that was used as a tool for deception and for Satan. And he is now using it for his glory and as a reminder to humanity. God curses the snake and uses it as a symbol for us to look at and see on a daily basis, maybe in some places. The snake that you see today, it is a representation of God's divine judgment upon not just the snake, but Satan himself. God curses the snake to slither on its belly for the rest of its existence, but why does God do this? As a symbol, a reminder for us, for Adam and Eve. I think this is one of the first acts of grace that God gives to fallen humanity. God is using the snake as a symbol of God's sovereign power, God's sovereign ability, that he is not limited because of Satan or because of the fall of humanity. When God commands that the snake will slither on its belly, it is symbolizing the humiliation of Satan. Satan has been humiliated before God, and God represents this in taking the legs off of this creature and making it into the snake that we know today. Satan believed that he could take control of humanity by his deception and that he would act as the sovereign one over man. Oh, Satan had no idea what was actually happening. God proves quite quickly to Satan that Satan holds no power. Satan is not sovereign. 
the snake is forced to the ground, just like a defeated king would be forced to the ground before the sovereign king and shown to be humiliated before that king. This is what the Satan is symbolizing for us. That Satan has been defeated. That this foe in which we have has been vanquished. He's been defeated, ultimately calling Satan a loser, if you will. So every time you see a snake, just think in your mind, loser, you lost. You thought you were going to get something, and look what happened. If you want to walk around with that L on your head, whatever, right? Like, Satan loses. This verse it also says that the snake will eat dust. Now, if you know anything about snakes, they don't eat dust. What do they eat? They eat bugs and small little animals and rodents and, and these kind of things. They don't actually eat dust. So what is God missing something here? No, this is a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech to one that has been defeated, one that has been pushed down, one that has been trampled on, meaning you've lost. This is what God is saying to Satan. You have lost, and here's your symbol of losing. The snake is a symbol of the curse. It's a symbol to us of what happens with sin and that we should be humble before God. Verse 14 is showing that God is sovereign over Satan in all power, in all authority, and in all ability. And understand this fact about God. He is no more or no less sovereign over a fallen world versus an unfallen world. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it didn't change God in any way. You get that, right? He wasn't changed. He didn't lose something whenever man lost something. His authority remained the same. The physical snake is proof of this fact. Whenever God curses the snake and takes his legs out from underneath him and forces him to the ground for the rest of his existence, it is proving that God has power and authority over all things. And God, in his power, in his control of life, he is in control of death as well. Satan does not have this power. So many times we give Satan so much more credit, so much more power than what the Bible gives him. Let me take you to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. It says this, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Satan believed that he was going to take something from God, rob God of some sort of power and some sort of control, but he doesn't. God proves to him quickly that he has been mistaken and that he is a big fat loser. Verse 15 Look at the curse that's given to Satan directly. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice how this verse starts. First two words. I will. See that? I will. Who's speaking? God is. God is doing something that is beyond the power and control of Satan. He is the responsible one here. He is the one taking ownership and control of the situation. He is not wondering what to do. He instantly knows how to take control of the situation. God is always in control. And Satan was thinking he had won something, he had taken something, but he fails. This verse is proof of that. What does God say he will do? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, this word enmity that's used in the ESV, it's also translated as hostility. And this is always used in reference to personal relationships as well. And so it's not just all the snakes of the world we have enmity. No, it's, it's in a personal sense, a human sense that this is being used. Satan had deceived the woman, but God is promising that she will not remain loyal to him. God is promising to put something new in her heart that is not there currently. There will be a change in her allegiance. Just as there was a radical change from the woman loving God and avoiding sin, hating sin, and that changed drastically where she started to love sin and hate God, God is promising there will be something new. 
There will be something new take place in her heart. There will be an enmity, a hostility that will be placed in her towards Satan. There will be a new radical change. Radically turning back to God and away from sin. This is really good news. The next line of this verse is painting the picture for us of the human condition. God is telling us that there are two camps. Two camps in humanity. He says, your offspring and her offspring. Now these, these offspring, these are reference to future generations in which God is talking about. That there's going to be a, a hostility between these two generations to come and for all these future generations to come. These are the ones that are offspring of Satan and then there's those that are the offspring of the woman that have, again, this radically new changed heart. And Jesus gets to the point of this whole idea of two different camps, two different parties, two different groups, two different families. Jesus proves this point in John chapter 8, and I do want you to turn there. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 47. It'll be on page 841 of that hardback Bible. I'll give you a moment to find that. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, help me, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus makes it quite clear to these Jewish leaders that... They are mistaken in their identity. Yes, they have a bloodline of Abraham, but Jesus is saying, you do not have a heart of Abraham. Your desire is very different from what Abraham desired. They say, oh, no, 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 we're we're of Abraham. Don't we keep the law? Don't we do these things? Don't we act religious? Yeah, they do. But Jesus says, you are not of God. It doesn't matter how religious you get. It doesn't matter how many Sunday school pins you earned. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've attended or how many things that you've completed. It's the desires of your heart. How can your desires change from hating God to loving God? How can your desires change from loving sin to hating sin? Friend, it is not by 
those attendances. It's only by a radical change to your inner soul, and it's by the power of God. What God is promising here in Genesis is to change the hearts of some of mankind. God is stating that he is sovereign over mankind and also, look, the offspring of mankind. Satan's not. Satan does not have this kind of power, this kind of control. God does. God holds this authority. There's a promise here being made that God is going to change the hearts of some so that they will become friends of God and foes to Satan. And the friends of Satan will become enemies of Satan and friends of God. Who has this kind of power, this kind of ability to change people's minds and hearts? Well, it's not them and it's not Satan. The only character we are left with that has any kind of power is God himself. What do we, what do we call this? We call this regeneration. We call this the new birth. And where do we get this terminology from? We get it from Jesus himself in John chapter 3, where he tells a religious man, you must be born again. There must be a radical change inside of you that takes place for you to be right with God. And we talk about this new birth in the same way that we should really talk about a, a physical birth into this world. It's a beautiful and miraculous thing that takes place, and this is what God does in our hearts. It means that we are completely changed in who we are. Our desires have changed, our love has changed, and also our hatreds have changed. We no longer hate God, but we love Him and we hate sin. This is evidence of regeneration, of a new birth. And that we have been moved out of the family of Satan into the family of God. It's that our desires have changed. Have you been born into the family of God? It only happens through Jesus' uh, his life, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. Uh, listen to what he, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, meaning Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is the emancipator of slaves. He is the one that frees us from this dead life and gives us new life in him. He is the only one that has this authority, this power. He is the only way in which our heart can be radically changed to love God and hate sin. He is the only way in which we can move out of one camp of humanity to another camp, from the offspring of Satan to the offspring of the woman. There is no middle ground spiritually. There's too many churches painting this picture that there's some sort of middle road, middle ground, friend, that does not exist. You will not find that in the Bible. There is either the children of God or the children of Satan. That's from Jesus' own perspective. So again, your opinion is just your opinion. I'm going to take Jesus' word over this, over your opinion. And he says there's only two. The question is, which one do you belong to? Which one are you actually in? Listen to 1 John 3, 8. John writes this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil and set the captives free. To regenerate their heart, regenerate their mind, that they would now be children of God. Satan has taken captive humanity. In Genesis 3, we see this in the fall of man. But whenever God sends his son into this world, he is sending one that has the power, the authority to rescue, to save. If you notice in the New Testament, every time a demon approaches Jesus, what do they do? They fall on their face. They are completely humbled before the Son of God. They know who he is. Satan believes that he had won something here in Genesis He thought he'd won humanity for eternity. He thought he was going to be the sovereign one over this world. But God promises that this will not be the case. And God promises to free some of them, to make them ultimately his children who are opposed to Satan and opposed to sin. 
And God is sending one to rescue. There's something very important for us to realize here with this idea. All of humanity is deserving of judgment. All of us are deserving of death. But God in his grace, he will save some. And this is what he has promised to do. I hear people say all the time that, well, you know, we're all just children of God and we should just love each other and God loves us. I think they speak in ignorance. They speak about something that's not biblical. As Jesus is saying, is everyone really a child of God? Jesus would say no. Is everyone really good by nature? Well, we saw last week, no, this is not the case. Let me make this even more clear this morning by giving a direct no to that thought. Are we all just children of God? No, not in the sense that people use it all the time. As Jesus said in John 8, and as we saw here in, John, in 1 John 3, this is not the case, but look at the next two verses in 1 John 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, there's a connection back to Genesis, here with the woman and the offspring, God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Only two camps. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Remember last week I used Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 to get this thought across about depravity and who we are. Ephesians 2 starting verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, meaning the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Bible is quite clear that there needs to be something radically different about us. That we need to be changed and transformed, moved from, from one camp to the other. It's the power of God that brings this. Is everyone a child of God? No. Not in the sense in which people like to use that and say, oh, well, see, we're, we're all just the same. We're not. Are we all children of God in the sense that we have been made in the image of God? Yes, that has not been lost in the fall. We, we talked about that in chapter 1. That still remains the imago Dei of humanity. That is true. But the desires of the heart indicate what family we are in. Have your desires been changed and transformed? Have you been set free from the slavery of sin? Have you been born again into righteousness? Go back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. There's a promise made here about what's going to happen. As it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is promising to change the woman's heart and to create a, a generation of people that have changed hearts. This starts to take place in the next chapter of Genesis, actually. But it is not fulfilled. Who, who is the he that this next line of Genesis 3.15 is talking about. This he that is going to bruise the head of Satan. The one that is going to have a bruise to his heel. Well, it's, it's not Cain. It's not Abel. It's not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Who's the he? Yeah, you got ahead of me there. You saw it coming. You're so smart. We can just wrap it up now, I guess. Well... What we have in this verse is what the theologians call the proto-evangelum. Or simply put, the first good news. The first gospel. This is what we have here in reference to the he. Before we get into who the he actually is, notice something very peculiar about the Hebrew writing that's taking place here. Notice how the wording is. It says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
This is strange in the Hebrew writing because Hebrew writing would rarely use the woman as the bloodline, as the one that would be followed in the seed or the offspring. It is usually the male or the husband. Why is it the woman here? I think there's indications, a subtle hint at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15 again. Notice this promised descendant, he is male. And what will he do? Well, the ESV says that he will bruise the head. The Hebrew word that's used here also means to strike, to to crush, or to grind. This is what is promised of this one that is to come. He is not just going to bruise the head of the serpent, as we kind of think of a bruise, like, oh, that's going to go away after a while. No, it's in the sense of he is going to crush him. He will strike him with a fatal blow, hence the head reference. Who is this future one that is to come? He is a conqueror. But what happens to this conqueror? What happens to this promised one? He will suffer. He will suffer a blow as well, but where is the blow to his heel? Meaning that the bruise in which he suffers, the strike in which he suffers, it's temporary. It will fade. It will heal. It will heal quickly. Who is this one that will crush the serpent? Okay, Sunday school answer. What is it? Jesus Christ. He is the one that will crush the head of the serpent. And here in verse 15, God is promising to make his enemies his friends. That is good news, friend. He is promising to change the hearts of people that are avoiding any kind of ownership of sin, that they they just will not repent, and they fall in line with Satan, and he promises to change their hearts, to change them from the friends of Satan to his friends, and it's all through the one that is to come. God is telling Satan directly here, you do not win. You are not the winner. Understand this about Satan. He is on death row. He is on death row today, and he is awaiting his execution. This is what is promised here. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, Satan saw that clock start ticking faster and faster. The day is coming. He did conquer. He did fulfill what Genesis 3.15 promised that he would do. Oh, we see the amazing grace of God here, don't we? Well, let's look quickly at the judgment that's given to the other two characters. And we don't have a lot of time here to talk about these two, so we'll quickly cover this. In verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, our English translation gets a bit messy here in this verse. Uh, because of the wording that's used. And sometimes we get led astray into believing things that aren't really true about what's happening here. Uh, the, the phrase that's being used, that you will sure, I will surely multiply your pain, the actual Hebrew wording of this is that God is not just going to increase it, as our English kind of likes to put it, but God is going to create something. There will be, or there will become a great pain. So God is not just increasing pain here. He is establishing pain and suffering in the heart of the woman and in her childbearing, in her, in her pregnancy. God is giving this, again, as judgment. He's giving this as a reminder. A reminder physically about the spiritual condition of humanity. A reminder to the woman that her pain is representative of the pain in which should be greater. Why would God do all this? Why would he, in, as it says, increase the pain or multiply the pain or make pain? Think about the woman. Doesn't she deserve worse? Doesn't she deserve what God promised to do and that was to put her to death? So first of all, we need to understand that, that God is not doing the worst that he could do to her. Or maybe what we would say, we want to be careful here, we use the word just to her. Because God will be just to sin. The second thing that we can see here is that um, 
God is going to remind her of her brokenness, of her sinfulness, and that this pain that she will feel is a reminder of her state, of her soul. God has given this pain in the physical realm to remind her of her spiritual condition. And these hardships, and this Hebrew word that's used there for pain, it has this idea of hardship. These hardships that she will have in her conception and also in the raising of her children, it will all be a reminder of the judgment, the curse of man. Why do your kids sin? You ever wonder that question? Why do they make such bad choices? Why are they rebelling against God? Parents, listen. They are little sinners. Little, little sinners sin a lot. Where do they get that from? They've inherited that. That same heart condition from their parents. Look at what God says to Eve here. Your desire. God's saying, here's, here's what's going to be in your heart now. Because this is what you've done in, in the fall and your obedience to the words of the devil and not to me. Your heart is going to be different toward the only person that you've known, your husband. Your heart will be different toward him. It will be changed. Why do your kids sin? Because they get it from you. Not in the sense that you've had to be an example of sin to them. But it's, it's passed down from generation to generation. And again, this whole idea of, of the separation of generations that God is talking about of offspring. There has to be a change in your heart and in their heart. This ideal marriage that was there, it's lost. But just because the ideal marriage has been lost, listen, your marriage is not without hope. And whatever the struggle is, whatever the pain is, whatever the the hardship that you are suffering, it is not over, friend. There is hope in Jesus Christ. If both parties are earnestly following after Jesus Christ, all these other issues... They will be resolved eventually. If, if our passion is for Christ first and foremost, and we are dedicated to his word, and we understand his example to us of loving us, and the mercy and grace shown to us, it will affect the way that we treat each other. One last thing here in verse 16 is that God is able to do something, again, miraculous and amazing and that he takes a, a crooked stick, if you will, and he's going to draw a straight line to the cross. How amazing is God that he can take something so broken and wretched and do something amazing with it. So in this curse that's being given to Eve, there's also this promise of the restoration is going to happen through her. The sinful creature is going to be used for God's plan and his will and nothing, nothing will detour that. No one is too far gone for God to save. No one is too sinful for God to transform and use. This is such good news. The third culprit that we have is Adam. The last three verses that we have about Adam, verse 17, 18, and 19. Verse 17 says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have not eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, men, listen. This verse is not giving you a proof text to say, I don't have to listen to you, woman. Don't do that. It will not go well with you. This is not what God means. That you shouldn't hear what your wife is saying. And if, if that's your heart, then maybe you need to come to Jesus. What, what is being said here is that Adam was listening to the voice of someone other than God. Adam was, as the New Testament tells us, he was not deceived into eating. He knew full well what he was doing. And he listened to her instruction, to her example. When he should have been establishing the example, he should have been setting the standard Instead, he was passive toward it, and sin comes into the world. So husbands, listen. What is your role? What is your duty? What is your responsibility? Be the example. Be the example of leadership in your home. Be the example of 
spiritual, the spiritual state of your heart and how that's going to affect your family. We need to set the example of obedience to God. Adam does not. And so God reminds Adam that he, he's going to suffer. Adam's name means man, as you might have guessed. But the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. Adamah. There's a connection here between the Hebrew word for ground and Adam because God's going to make it quite clear of who Adam really is. God chose him in this judgment that Adam, in thinking that he's going to gain control of something, he has lost everything. This judgment that God gives him is in relation to the ground. That it was once abundant, it was fruitful, it was multiplying, and Adam could just you know, pick something off the tree and eat it. I can imagine Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory with that. You just pluck chocolate off the tree. I don't know if that would happen, but what an amazing place it would be. But now what does God do? He curses the ground. And so these trees will not produce like they were, and now Adam is forced to bend over and break his back and work in the dirt. And God says, in pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life. You know how long Adam lived? 930 years. That's a long time to break your back. It's a long time till retirement, isn't it? 930 years. Adam was given this curse. Again, as a reminder to him. It wasn't the full force of judgment that God was giving him. What was that? It was death. But again, even in the judgment that God gives, it is merciful. Adam and Eve both, they are given a judgment that is hard. And it has changed the way that we live today. Look at verse 18 and what God says to Adam. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Thorns and thistles. (laughs) Thorns and thistles. You can take dirt. Do nothing to it, and what it grows. Thorns and thistles. You can have brand new dirt tilled up and it's ready for seed. And before you even get out the next morning, like there seems to be some weed that grows up out of it. Where did this come from? Who brings these thorns and thistles into existence? Was it Satan? No, it was God, wasn't it? Understand that God makes things hard because of sin. Why? To remind us of our desperate need for him. That we are desperately in need of one that can fix the decay, that can fix the disorder, that can fix the disease, that can fix the death that is approaching us. These thorns and thistles, they are literal in what God means, but also they are representative of something spiritual. That these thorns and thistles in which we have in our life, if they are not dealt with, they will choke out life. Just like those weeds in your yard, they will choke out life if they are not dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. Why would God give these things to Adam? A reminder. Look at what verse 19 says. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Understand this. Work was not the curse. Work was part of the design But the efficiency of work is the curse. The work in which Adam was doing, he was so fruitful and everything was just so easy. But now because of sin, work has gotten very hard. He says, by the sweat of your face, Adam, you are going to live an exhausting life. You will be exhausted by your work now. It will not be enjoyable. It will be hard. This original design for humanity that has been lost is because of our sin. God then tells Adam that he will return to the dirt after working the dirt, which sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? You're going to work really hard, then you're going to die. And this is how a lot of us think, isn't it? I'm just going to work and then I'm going to die. I want you to see something beautiful here in what God is doing, what he is saying to Adam. God is telling Adam, You're going to work really hard. You're going to work in this dirt that was once easy. Once you had control over it. You had dominion over this. And now it's resistant to you. 
And then you're going to die and return to it, Adam. Again, that sounds depressing on the surface, but listen to what God is saying. God is warning Adam of what? Death is coming. Adam, death is coming for you. What's a warning? It's something that's given to you so you can make preparations, right? You see a warning sign. It's like, don't touch this. High voltage, it will kill you. I prepare my mind. Don't touch that. God is making, he's giving preparation to Adam. Warning to Adam. Adam, understand, death is coming. The the promise that is being made in verse 15 of this one that's to come, Adam, trust in that one. Adam, trust in the one that is to come that was going to crush the head of the serpent. Adam, understand, this curse of sin, it is powerful, but it pales in comparison to my power, Adam. I can change you. It's through this one that is to come. This power of sin, of death, that is approaching all of us. It seems too great. It seems that we can't get away from it. That that it's just, it's inevitable which death is. But it's through this radically changed heart. Moving from one that hates God to one that loves God. That we can be friends of God. And we have a hope in that. To live with him for all of eternity. God. God is this one that we need to submit our life to. And this is what God is saying to Adam. Adam, I'm the one in authority. I'm the one that has the power over life and death. And here's your warning. Death is coming. So Adam, get right with me. Trust in this one that is to come. And friend, this is what I say to you this morning. Trust in the one that has come. Trust in the snake crusher. Trust in the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15 thousands of years ago and God drew a straight line to the cross with the offspring of Eve that you could be saved if you trust in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Even in your judgment to us as sinful creatures, you are merciful and kind. You are gracious to wretched sinners like me. God, it is only by your power and by your Son that we can be saved. We need to trust in Jesus Christ. Father, help our unbelief this morning. God, if there's anybody here that they they don't understand, they don't trust, and Father, maybe in your spirit you have enlightened them this morning to see how good you are, how kind you are. Just as you were so kind to Adam and Eve, Lord, I pray that you would move in their heart, you would change them and, and give them the gift of faith that they would believe. Father, encourage us as believers To understand that our God is more powerful. More powerful than anything, anyone that you are. The giver of life. You're the one that has the power over death. And that our lives need need to be in submission to you and to your word. You are a good master, a good father. And we thank you for who you are in this time which you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name.